Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's time to get embarrassed with us. Salon, you know how we do here every week on Lost and Rewound. This is Radio Free Brooklyn, and you have reached the 3 p.m. hour on the East Coast. Welcome if you are joining us for the first time, and if you are back, welcome back. If you are interested in learning more about the format of Lost and Rewound and what we're all about, in case you don't know what we're all about, it is the show where we play all of your old audio and listen to it and talk about it. So if you have something you want to contribute to the show, please go to Lost and Rewound at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, and we will be happy to hear your pitches. Go to our Patreon page, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash pledge. Pledge a dollar. Pledge three dollars. Pledge thirteen dollars. I don't know. I mean, I think it pretty much tells you there. There's all these different incremental amounts that you could contribute to the community as a whole. Yes, we are a 501c3, and we can accept any and all of your charitable contributions. Again, that address is radiofreebrooklyn.org slash pledge. And if you want to be a sponsor for the show, be a sponsor for Lost and Rewound, please go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash L-A-R. Jimmy is out again this week. He will be back next week. We do have Alison Goodman back with us because she's a darling. A darling, I tell you, a darling. In the meantime, let's... Begin. For five years, Matt LeMay was a member of Rhode Island-based band Get Him, Eat Him. Now... He's moved on to the world of audio engineering and product management. Alongside heading up studio A Question of Frequency, Matt is also a published author. He wrote about Elliot Smith's seminal album XO for the 33 and a third series, recently put out a how-to guide called Product Management in Practice, and was named a Top 50 Influencer by the Product Management Year in Review in both 2015 and 2016. I, however, will always remember him as the Pitchfork album reviewer who gave Trail of Dead source tags and codes a 10 and Paul Barman's Palleluja a 2. Had what to bring o- both of those things well- up, didn't you? <laughs> it is an honor to have you in the studio, Thank Mr. You. Matt LeMay. I was just talking with my wife about MC Paul Barman this morning. Oh, yeah? Because we were talking in Rhymey Talk, which we do sometimes, and I said, remember that MC Paul Barman song, Vulture Shark Sculpture Park? And she said, no, I don't. And that was it. She phased it out completely. She did, which I think is fair, but I would since I gave the album on which that song appears a two. Mm. I never listened to, to that album. Paul Barman's highlight for me, career highlight, was his inclusion on the Master Ace Disposable Arts album. I had not even been aware of that. Because there's sketches on that album. Mm-hmm. The, the, it's a beautifully made album, kind of like Lost in Time, uh, released in 2001. And a lot of rappers, uh, producers show up on it, including Paul Barman, but not on songs. He only shows up in the sketches as Master Ace's uh, 
roommate because Master Ace goes back to the school to learn how to be back into hip hop again because I guess yeah. he's like been away for a while. So <laughs> now he's going back to school upstate and Paul Varman's like, so where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn? Holy cow! I've heard so much about Brooklyn. <laughs> Tell me, what's it like? And then Master Ace is like, well, let's just say it's different. There you go. So, And he had some really good inclusions on that. I will say uh, the album he released more recently than that Thought Balloon Mushroom Cloud is actually great. It's mm. really good. Uh, my friend Graham Smith, who fronts a band called Kleenex Girl Wonder that I play drums in now, recommended that album to me. And I was very clear with Graham that he and Paul Barman had the shared distinction of being people who annoyed me by rapping in the early aughts. Kleenex Girl Wonder, who put out a few of my favorite indie pop records, started putting rap skits on their records, uh, which I did not uh, react to very well. But I listened to that album, Thought Balloon Mushroom Cloud. It is very, very good. I would particularly recommend the song Owl Pellets. Owl Pellets. Writing it down. Now I know. Now you know. Now I know. Your involvement in writing music reviews. I mean, you've been a writer... Uh, I mean, you were running music reviews when you were in high school. Yeah, so I, I, I remember very clearly I applied to write for Pitchfork when I was 16 years old. It was a Sunday afternoon. I had just visited with my aunt and cousins, and I was bored. And I really wanted to write about music I cared about. I didn't understand that there was anybody else in the world who cared about the same music I did. Pitchfork seemed like this very abstract thing that – somehow seemed to like a lot of the same things I liked. It didn't occur to me that there were like hipsters out there, or like indie rockers or people yeah. who liked this stuff. I was in high school. Like nobody right. knew about the music that I liked then, aside from a few kids who were a year or two younger than me, who I assumed rightly were way too cool to ever speak to me. I was not cool in high school. I was a giant nerd. So, that played music. That played music, but I, I think that there has throughout my young life less so now no it's still a thread now people still incorrectly correlate my interest in music and ability to play music with any kind of sort of interpersonal coolness or status when in fact i have always approached it from the place of being a giant nerd sure um, when i started working in tech people would be like wow it's so cool you play music and i was like no you don't understand like the way you are about data science i'm that way about microphones and compressors i'm not like a cool person going out and partying and living the life. I just want to be making stuff and tweaking EQ curves on snare drums and doing decidedly uncool things, which I think has always been the case for me. When you first picked up an instrument, how old were you? I started playing piano when I was very young. This sounds like I'm humble bragging, but I auditioned for the Manus School, which is a very prestigious music school here in New York, and was told that I had perfect pitch and could be a viola prodigy if I wanted to. Um, I did not want to. <laughs> and my parents were very lenient and accepting. They were like, well, okay. And then I went and took piano lessons and wound up hiding under the piano bench when my piano teacher yelled at me about all the potential I was squandering by not practicing. So I stopped taking piano lessons. There's a running theme in this about not having the discipline to excel <laughs> sure. uh, beyond my limited ambitions. But I wound up uh, learning folk acoustic guitar from my dad who had an old Stella guitar that his mom had given to him. And that was what really resonated for me. There's a thread running through a lot of the music I've made, especially with my vocal range and the way I sing, that weirdly to me always evokes the sense memory of singing Scottish and Celtic folk music, which isn't necessarily a connection one would make if I didn't make it for them. But I started doing that, and then I took guitar lessons from a very kind of like, this was in like fifth, sixth grade, like a very Stevie Ray Vaughan, like noodly blues player, probably reached my peak technical chops circa eighth grade 
And then I discovered indie rock. And once you start listening to Pavement and Guided by Voices, the idea of playing guitar like Stevie Ray Vaughan is suddenly much less interesting. You grew up here in New York City. I did. So you were surrounded by plenty of radio that was playing, uh, you know, the CMJ Fair, all like what's popular yes. on, on the college scene. So because you're young enough that it's impressive upon you, you could learn what all the older kids are listening to. The funny thing was I had no idea of who the older kids were or that they were listening to it. Do you have an older sibling? No, I'm an only child. You I, have an only the child. way I discovered indie rock is really weird. I saw a poster for the band Jonathan Fire Eater. That name sounds so familiar. It, it's the band that became the Walkmen, basically. Oh, but um, okay. they signed a multi-million dollar recording deal. They factor heavily into the book Meet Me in the Bathroom about the history of New York indie rock circuit yes. 2000, which is a great read. Mostly about the Strokes, right? Yeah, um, and, and in many and a ways, a little bit the, of Ryan Adams. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Jonathan Fireeater were kind of the band that could have been the Strokes had they wanted to be the Strokes and not had as many drug problems. I saw this poster for Jonathan Fireeater, and that seemed like a cool name to me. So I did what any reasonable, not weird teenager would do, and I went to the website cdnow.com, which you mm. might remember. Oh yeah, and put that band name into the album advisor feature, which would recommend albums similar to a band or album that you typed in. Waterfall. And what came up was uh, was Modest Mouse's The Lonesome Crowded West, Pavements, Slanted and Enchanted. Or no, it was Bright in the Corners that came up, actually. Pavements, yeah. Bright in the Corners, Sleater Kenny's Dig Me Out, Guided by Voices, Mag, Earwig. All, all of these, you know, once you see one and then it just it catches fire. Yeah. You, all of a sudden, now you've got all these albums that are must listen. Yeah, it really was like a whole new world opening up for me. And I remember having my mom write a check because we didn't want to put our credit card on the internet. And I did this order from cdnow.com of those albums. Um, the Promise Rings Nothing Feels Good was also in that. And I remember that specifically because when I was listening to clips from that record, Real Player was having a glitch. And I would hear these kind of emo <laughs> When were they not having with, a glitch? <laughs> Real Player. Remember when Real Player was a thing? The songs would kind of fizzle out and become static. And I thought that was what the album was actually like. And I thought it was the artsiest, coolest thing I had ever heard, that there was this band that was making these emotional indie pop songs, but then it would just become three seconds of pure static. And then the song would come back. But it turns out that was just the real player breaking. When did you get the Elliott Smith album? The funny that, thing the is the one I, that you wrote yeah. about for 30 so, um, series. But the funny thing, and I think this speaks to, to some other things in my personal life as well, I never liked Elliott Smith's music for a long time. I did not get into EXO until late in high school when I had an internet girlfriend who was very into Elliott Smith. And even then, I think I listened to those records more to try to connect with her than I did out of any genuine appreciation for those records. I don't think it was until really my band was active and I was talking to a guy named Raf Spielman, who was the keyboard player in my band, and a guy named Chad Clark, who mixed our second record. And they were like, yeah, you know... Elliot Smith's XO, like that guy has such a reputation for being like a sad, druggy songwriter, but that record is really sharp and really critical of that entire lens, the kind of lens of like looking at music through how beautiful suffering can be. And just thinking about that and thinking about how a lot of my own assumptions about Elliot Smith's music colored my hearing of his music kind of prompted me to reevaluate those records and XO in particular. And that was the jumping off point for writing that book. Just a quick little note. I did mention that Allison Goodman was joining us. She was running a little late, but she is here right now. <laughs> she has made Hi. it. She has managed to float in magically into the studio. It was just so graceful the way I did it. It was very graceful. You, it's okay. You just missed Matt and I were chatting about uh, a book that he had written on Elliot Smith's XO. Um, cool. Matt. 
because you started a new studio called A Question of Frequency. Yes. It's sort of a little bit of a throwback, if you will, taking it back to the instance of being that music geek and embracing the music geekdom that you, you know, yeah. were trying to pass off before as just a part of you. But this is you. This is, you know, yeah. what you're what you're interested in is being able to help people out and make the sound as good as it possibly can be. I think so. And, and it kind of goes back to some of the stuff we're going to listen to, some of the stuff I recorded in high school. This is terrible, but when I was a kid, I really wanted like a computer that could process audio and a sound card and a microphone. And I could not afford it, and I wanted my parents to buy it for me. And I wrote this like incredibly detailed 10-page proposal awesome. explaining why my parents should gift me this thing. And I found it and realized, which is just genuinely terrible, that I was advocating for why I, as a teenager should get a new computer rather than my parents having a new computer (laughs) so this was kind of a zero-sum game and i was uh, not above being very kind of passive aggressive and manipulative in the way i framed it but it worked which again is not terribly a positive reflection of of me as a person then or now great i think i think you were a businessman as a very young young man i guess that's one way of looking at it Um, And now here you are. You are here. I am. You've been in tech now, doing product management. You are an important player in the business world. Not that. (laughs) I'm I'm something. I don't know about that. But I got this computer, and I just spent so much time figuring out how to make things work with no formal knowledge, with no sense of what the right way was to do things. I just experimented and made a lot of drum tracks with weird samples and took guitar tracks and played them backwards and did all this stuff. And it's funny because listening back to some of the things from high school that I dug up, Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I kind of was right on in some ways. There was a a just sense of experimenting with stuff till it sounded interesting to me that I think I'm trying to get back to a little bit more, having gone through a period of being much more stressed out about the best way to do things and the right way to Mm -hmm. do things and what's the proper way to do, you know, to mix a song and to equalize this and to compress that. Um, just going back to that place of, you know, messing around with settings and moving things around until they're compelling in some way. I want more of that back in my life. Yeah. Were you originally more into collaborating with your friends who were involved in music or were you very much more of a basement producer where you were happy to be in your special place? I mean, I'm an only child. I was very much more of a like, leave me alone and let me do this on my own terms thing. When I got to college, um, I started a band, Get Him, Eat Him, and we toured and we recorded together. And I was not always a good bandmate. <laughs> um, I was not always thoughtful of my bandmates' contributions or a good facilitator of our shared collaboration. I think in some ways a lot of the work I do as a product manager around bringing together people with specialized skill sets is work that uh, sort of I, I developed at the expense of my bandmates. So uh, apologies and thank you. But listening back, to some of the stuff that my band did also, their contributions were really amazing. I mean, having ideas that are different from your own in the mix, if you know how to handle them, and if you can see them as a gift, not something that's a threat, it's really awesome. I think it took me a long time to be okay with that, and I think that I'm happy to have more of that now. The kind of mixing I do now is very collaborative. You know, People are bringing me their tracks. They have a vision for it, and it's our job to work together to get to that vision. We're, that's awesome. Yeah. That's like the biggest gift that art gets. I think that you realize yeah. over time because you you don't you're accidentally kind of very selfish in the in the beginning just because like there's so much you want to bleed out. You yeah. know, it is such like a it's you as a resource. And then mm-hmm. I think if you grow along with your art and you kind of find that balance in that awesome place, 
you find exactly what you're talking about. I think like that's the greatest part about like kind of perseverance through what you love. Yeah. And understanding it and evolving with it. And then you're like, oh, every couple of years, I think you're even more like, oh, cool. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's the hope anyhow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope overall. AOL Instant Messenger has somehow managed to pop up back in our lives. And I use this as a segue because the first track we're about to hear <laughs> is called I Am Me. And you wrote this in high school. I did not write this at you all. You did not this write a cover. this. This is a, is a cover. song. You, you recorded this. I recorded this in high school. So the, the setup, and then I will leave the rest of it to the song itself. <laughs> My friend Miranda, who was a dear friend of mine in high school, came to me and said, I found the worst song in the world. It's a song by a teen <laughs> wannabe pop star called Brittany Cleary. And it's called I Am Me, as in instant message me. And her dad co-wrote some of the lyrics, and it's just really weird. I dare you to do a cover of this song. And I was pretty depressed at the time and had been listening to a lot of the Yolo Tango album, and then nothing turned itself inside out. So uh, teen pop song about instant messaging, plus mid to late period kind of moody Yolo Tango jams, plus depression, plus wink and nod to teenage friends equals what you're about to hear it's like if someone had done an indie cover of friday by rebecca black but before rebecca black i was just gonna say that yeah back (laughs) not to toot my own horn and not that my high school self deserves or needs redemption of any kind you gave rebecca black a career (laughs) i I am personally responsible for rebecca kill him (laughs) um okay so (laughs) we'll listen to this and uh, again this is lost and rewound the show where we get shameless with our old audio let's get shameless Let's meet at the same time, same place. Same DJ panels in your face, girlfriend. Send it, I am. TTYL, no time to spell. Oops, there goes that little bell. So bye bye.
like a beautiful reinterpolation of terrible lyrics but believing in them you can hear that you actually care about this song i think what i cared about was my own profound sadness at the time but yeah. that was able to bleed through even with those lyrics i think it's all that matters you just have to believe in whatever you believe you're in something you right? put, like anything one thing i do remember about that when i was visiting my grandparents in new jersey i went to a guitar center and i bought a korg poly 800 keyboard which is a really hard to understand keyboard. And I figured out how to make it work for that one song for those little like keyboard parts with the kind of wow happening. And I never figured out how to use it again. That was the one was time the I one ever time. used that keyboard effectively for anything. You were just, uh, I was just going to ask where your grandparents are in Jersey or were from. They were in uh, Exit 8 Cranberry, Monroe Township, that area. I'm from Westfield, New Jersey. Oh, That's why I asked. There you go. <laughs> Jersey Connection. Wait, so... You were 18 when this came out, or how yes, old were you? I was, I was, I think I was 17 or 18. This was actually probably later in high school. But there's a story that goes with this. As I told my wife on our first date when I told her the story, I was like, you're about to get my best story, so it's all downhill from here. Um, but I recorded... You told this to your wife when you first started dating? Yes, because it's a good story. I don't know if it's that great a story, but it's the best I have. Which, okay. again, probably doesn't reflect very well <laughs> on my stories, but I recorded this and I sent it to my friend Miranda. And then my friend Frankie, I sent it to him too, and he was like, Brittany Cleary is playing in Brooklyn. She had, I think, by that point already changed her name to Nikki Cleary because she didn't want to be confused with that other Brittany. Oh, yeah. You right? know. Um, Makes sense. But she played this show in Central Park. I went with Frankie, and it was weird. It was a weird show. Nikki Cleary was in a cast, and she had teen pop dancers, and me and my friend were there, and we're like, this just the optics around this are terrible. Everything about this is terrible. But I had burned my cover onto a pink CDR and written my email address on it. Awesome. And my friend Frank had, before we went, dared me to find Brittany slash Nikki Cleary and give her a copy of this. And I did after the show. Um, I said, hi, I've recorded a cover of your song. Bye. And I ran away. And several weeks later, I got a phone call from one of her songwriters. And it was an email. I just put my email in there saying, like, Mike Cleary, who I believe was Brittany slash Nikki's father, gave me a copy of your 
cover. Very interesting. What's the best number to reach you? And I got a call from this lady whose name I forget saying, you know, I'm one of the songwriting team. We need studios to record demos at. What's your availability? And I was like, I'm just like a teenager who lives with his... Who has a ton of beer. You probably (laughs) could have done it. I mean, I probably could have done it. It doesn't take much. No. But I think I blew it insofar as my baffled, nervous reaction uh, was not one of... Yes, indeed. I have the full facilities required because it would be pretty weird if somebody showed up to record a demo for a teen pop star at a studio. And it's some like weird hipster teenager's bedroom on the Upper East Side where he lives with his parents. That oh, see, would that's be... what I just hope for like, yeah. on an early Sunday morning. <laughs> Maybe exactly. it would just be a great, a great relief <laughs> all, for everybody. All these years later, we've, we've, I think we've heard of more unorthodox setups for recording situations. But you People were... are actually paying more money for that now. Yeah. Yeah. It's authentic, right? Yeah. You get that vibe. <laughs> that would have been your first client. That would have been my first client. It's Whatever true. happened to her? I don't know. She's going to hear this and be like, oh my God. I hope she does. It's unearthed You're after all these email. years. Wherever she is, I hope she is well. And I hope that uh, she's sorted out whatever weird issues she has needed to sort out as a result of having that experience. <laughs> Performing in Central Park, you said? Yes, the Central Park summer stage. Uh-huh. And that was probably one of the more unusual shows for a kid like you who is listening to Pavement and uh, yes, got about I was and mostly uh, in high school. I was I was very lucky because my best friend in high school, his dad is a music librarian at NYU, and his older sister was away at college. So we would go to shows at the Knitting Factory like three nights a week. Awesome! And I'd just crash. I love that old afterwards. space. That's it amazing. was so great. I was I was really lucky. Uh, I got to see a lot of shows, which were very formative. Nice. The second track that you have is called Rock Out. Yes, it was titled such when I was a teenager. And this was... Was this uh, also when you were in high school? Yeah, this was from... I think this... I must have These been are all 16. from high school. These are all from high school, yeah. Because in college, my band Get Him Eat Him basically started when college started for me. Where'd you go to college? Uh, to Brown. It went to Brown. Brown. So, And you guys all glommed onto each other immediately when you got in. I was a sophomore. They were all freshmen. So, in fact, I did have one year where I was just kind of like... I tried to get into college radio, and I was mm. really bad at it. Um, I was the rock music director for our radio station and I was incredibly, this seems to be a theme running through a lot of the conversations we've had, but I uh, failed to excel via the uh, criteria given to me. I was very lazy and I didn't want to talk to anybody. So, you know, we'd have radio publicists calling like, are you going to chart that? And I was like, I'm not here, I'm not here, go away. (laughs) Um, But then sophomore year, I met my bandmates and that happened pretty quickly. We recorded our first demo in our dorm room. We sent it to record labels. Absolutely Kosher signed us. We opened for the Wrens at the Middle East downstairs in Boston. Fucking and we awesome. were recording and touring by that summer. So oh, that's, it that's, was the one I wanna, that's awesome. what I want to hear. Opening was, up for the Wrens. That was God awesome. Damn. Yeah. In the email that when you were sending me all the, these tracks, Matt, you had indicated that some of these tracks did become tracks that eventually yes. were. This one became a Get Him Eat Him song that never made it onto an album, but we put on our first tour only EP. It is an instrumental, so... Yeah. Uh, but this is all you. Sorry, slash you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it.
What? Mm-hmm. Rock out. Mm-hmm. Dude. Okay. I've mentioned this before and with many other guests who are like, oh, I don't know about this. And then they bring their audio to us and we hear it. And we're like, it's like, what the fuck, dude? You were fucking amazing. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> I actually, I, I think I did some really smart shit on this one. I, I, I have to give past me credit for a few guitar arrangement tricks on this in particular that I wish I had used. When you were that age and you were listening to all this music yeah, that... Yeah, I was 16, ins- I think, when I did this one. And you were just inspired by all these different artists that meant something to you. Yes, uh, a lot of built to spill in there and the guitar arrangements. The, the thing about this one that I remember, this was the first thing I recorded after I bought a bass, and it was a pretty gross kind of Ibanez new metal sound gear bass, but I did not know that at the time. I just knew that like the guy at me. You were learning music. how to play bass. I was learning how to play bass, and I had bought... That same week, I had gone to the Tower Records on West 4th and bought the Jawbox Savory CD single. Um, and there is a song on that single, a B-side, which is maybe my favorite Jawbox song called 68. And that song was my moment of realizing that what the bass was doing could kind of build tension with the guitar rather than holding down the guitar. And that song um, was my first attempt to to do that. I remember thinking like, all right, I'll record this guitar part, and what if the bass does something different? And it was my first, it was sort of that expansive moment of realizing that the relationship between the bass and the guitar didn't have to be the bass playing the root notes of the chords that the guitar is playing, but rather that the guitar could be doing something kind of angular, and the bass could be doing something that brings out sort of a particular valence or kind of facet of that. Um, And that was exciting to me. Awesome. First track like this or any other track, yeah. you have options of what's going to be the anchor, yeah. what's going to yeah, be yeah, yeah. what's going to be carried by all the other uh, sounds. So what you're telling us here is is that the bass is really what you were trying to go for as being the anchor, as with I guess a lot of music, but even more so because it would be where normally the guitar would be carrying everything else with all the melodies. I think if if anything, it's funny because hearing you say that, I realized that one thing I was not good at then, and it took me really a lot longer to understand. I don't think anything's quite anchoring this. I was interested in the interplay between the guitar and the bass, but everything was just kind of flat. Like everything's just pushing. And I think I didn't quite understand in the broader sense, like how to work with space. So Chad Clark, who mixed my band's second record, says you should always know where the flashlight is. If you're imagining a band playing, you should always know who has the flashlight on them. Right. And I think Ian MacKay taught him that, uh, which is awesome. But... I did not know where the flashlight was. It was all just texture and yearning and experimentation and trying stuff out without much strategy. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we've got more tracks with Matt LeMay. This is Lost and Rewound on Radio Free Brooklyn.
Our guest this week is product manager extraordinaire, audio engineer, musician, music prodigy, Matt LeMay. You have a lot of roles, sir. You do. I'm busy. You're a busy man. I want to make a point that one of the interesting connections between being an album reviewer and being uh, a PM year in review, product manager, two years in a row. You're an influencer. Ugh, I hate that word. Oh. I hate that word. I mean, I, I, I because I feel like it suggests that some people are more, or rather, that visibility and influence are the same thing. Mm. I think I, I'm relatively visible in my career, but I think that people tend to be influenced by the people closest to them who they trust the most. Like I have some Twitter followers, not even that many. My wife has more than I do, but I think I'm just a dude. I'm just trying to do my stuff. Just trying to do a good job. If there's one sentence that I say the most day to day, it's I'm just trying to do a good job. <laughs> I just want to do a good job. That's it. What inspired you to write Softy? So Softy was kind of my my bloody Valentine phase. I remember, God, I remember Super so distorted. clearly. Yeah, I remember really clearly um, going to. The Tower Records and Lincoln Center. I was kind of dating someone at the time, insofar as I ever dated anyone in high school, which is not really. Um, who went to LaGuardia and who was like very beautiful and going through a lot of stuff. And I would go and wait for her to get out of school, and there would always be some reason she couldn't meet me. So I would spend a lot of time with my disc man sitting on the steps of Lincoln Center and being very sad. And I <laughs> it's a beautiful bought, image, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind it's of true. is. But I had bought uh, Loveless, the My Bloody Valentine album, and listened to it a lot. And got really interested in this idea of the expression that can come through pure texture. So what happens if you're not thinking about structure and you're not thinking about melody? You're just thinking about texture and you're just manipulating guitars until the emotion created by the texture of the guitar becomes totally overwhelming. And this was my attempt to do something like that. Awesome.
feel really honored that this is <laughs> happening on the beginning of a thirsty Thursday. Yes. Me too. Thursday, Thursday thirsty night. Thursday. <laughs> this is a wonderful occasion to be able to hear all these soundscapes. This is awesome. Dude, like the fact that you're doing this all on your own is so yeah. freaking impressive. Thank I, you. I know I keep on hammering that point across, but uh, I hope to make it even more clear that I, I would not have been able to even know that you were programming the drums. Oh, I programmed So I used... A, it's like um, you could have been playing drums considering how many instruments you already knew how to play. I do now know how to play drums. I did not really at the time. Um, but I used this really weird arcane system called sound fonts. That was, sound fonts. Yes, which... Uh, you were using a Mac or... A I was using a PC. Oh, okay. Sound fonts were, were uh, from the creative company and their Sound Blaster line of sound cards. All right. Back when that was like the peak of audio technology. I would literally just draw them in on a music staff note by note. I would just draw in each drum and, and manually set the velocity of each one. It was very time-consuming, but also very comforting. So that, that track became a Get Him, Eat Him song as well? That did not. That one was sort of unique at the time. I think that was sort of a transitional moment when I was trying to just sort of mess with sound and see what happened. And I think I realized that that's not really my jam. Like, I'm a song person. I wanted more songs. There are some drum fills in there that are directly lifted from some Promise Ring songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the backwards guitar solo thing was inspired by a band called The Green Pajamas, who are still one of my favorite mm. bands. Did you play this stuff for a lot of people? Or No, did- I don't think I ever played this for anybody. I burned some of this on a CD and gave a copy to my music teacher, who was very impressed, which made sense. This is a weird thing to say, but I felt like I was always pretty good at gauging what it meant to be impressed by the fact that I had managed to do a thing versus the thing itself. And it always felt like what was impressive was, wow, you as a 17-year-old working on your computer managed to do this thing, not that the thing itself had enough intrinsic worth to be impressive without that context around it. So I felt like I always understood that enough to be like, okay, Yes, like, good for me, I was able to do this thing, but I have more work to do before there's something that I'm ready to share with the world at large. What did you learn from your music teacher? Um, Not much, but what I learned was not to be a jerk. Um, That music teacher, I mean, I went to a public high school for nerds in New York, and everybody was very full of themselves. My my cousin went there, too. I I know. I'm I'm familiar, but So you know the type, right. Well, there's a lot of types. A lot of of rappers went there, too. Yes, that's true. I remember one time when he was talking about, this music teacher was talking about how difficult it is to translate opera because it's not just the words, it's the melody and the way that the words. And this one student who was, I don't want to say a nemesis of mine, I think he would say that we were uh, just jovial acquaintances, but I saw him as a nemesis. (laughs) Jovial Um, acquaintances. But he, he said, yes, you know, it's very difficult to understand the Aeneid if you haven't read the original Latin. And the music teacher just went... You read that for Latin class in high school. Get out. Get out. You don't get to say that. Who do you think you are? If you can't read the original Latin. You read it in high school. You're in high school. Get out of my class. I remember having this moment of thinking, like, this music teacher is my favorite person in the world yeah. right now. Thank that you. That rules. Okay. We, we don't have time to delay. We have to get to this next track called Chasing Shadows. This is not a track that continued with this title, but did show up in. Yes, it showed up on the first Get Him Eat Him album as a song called Posture. Okay, so people who are familiar with your catalog will recognize the melodies, but this is in its first iteration called Chasing Shadows. And what's the relevance? Why Chasing Shadows? Because I was a writer of bad teenage poetry. You too! Oh, yeah. We, we both did it. We both did I it. Um, all three of us did it. Yeah. This one teenage poetry. We have found... And that felt like a, a poetic sentiment that, uh, thankfully, I never recorded the vocals for. So this is also an instrumental. Again, sorry, <laughs> slash, you're welcome. We're going to listen to this. And when we come back, we're going to have a, a collective bad poem ready for you. 
right after this. All right. <laughs> Chasing Shadows. fucking money i i mean that it's so you know it takes you on a journey 
What could I say? I was happy with that one. That must have been senior year of high school because the only way I would have played those bass parts is if I had already heard the first Interpol EP. Mm. Uh, because I definitely copped a lot of bass chops from Carlos D of Interpol. That, that little, uh, there's no way I would have thought to have my fingers move in that pattern in that way unless I had been thinking about that specifically. Who was the guy that he reminds me of? He reminds me of... Uh, Crispin Glover? Yep. Yep. You, you and I, <laughs> intrinsic. Right there with you. Yep. I'm, well, we, they played college. Uh, they played, sorry, they played Cornell when I was at Ithaca, uh, and I got a chance to meet them uh, at like an after party, and Carlos D was very personable, and I remember at one point he was holding a rat, and I'm like, so wait, is this... Is, is this, this straight up Crispin Glover is cosplay? Up, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fair question. While we were listening to that track, uh, we uh, were spitballing some ideas uh, of, I guess, what the track had reminded us of in the moment. We were just sort of creating a brooding poem sort of interactively. And I did include things that you said. Yes, well, well, I was not uh, being a very good sport. No, no, no. You were being a great sport. Dark, stormy, unhinged, too real, (laughs) expository, whiplashed, relentless. Hold on, I have to take care of this. That is better than my teenage poetry by far. <laughs> Hold on, I have to by take a wide margin. <laughs> Hold yeah. on, that's actually kind of good. Hold on, I have to. It, it, it speaks to our our modern condition of uh, of multitasking. <laughs> I mean, we have it's you can't not be a multitasker. These you have <laughs> to be doing three things at one time. That was beautiful, and I'm really grateful that you contributed all of this to Thank us, you. Matt. We have time for one more track, and it's called Sevens. This one was, I think, probably the last one I did in high school. It became a Get Him song that we played at our very first show at AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island, but it never made it onto a recording. It was my attempt to do a kind of weird time signature song, hence the title. Uh, there is a vocal in the chorus, which was the best I could come up with at the time. There's some cool texture on the vocal. I hate writing lyrics. I hate recording vocals. That's probably why I didn't do it. Um, but I like mixing vocals because there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with the texture. I think it was sort of a magnetic fields pastiche acoustic thing, which did have lyrics, but I never recorded them. So... Uh, That's this one. The drums sound cool.
religious. Thank you. That was a cool one. I had some good ideas in that one. Do you like High School Matt's ideas? So the funny thing about High School Matt is that High School Matt had very intense emotions that were kept very private. High School Matt had crushes on a lot of his female friends. (laughs) Yep. And High School Matt had deep feelings and was very lonely and very conflicted, but was also in many ways very reserved and very polite and was very, very, very cognizant of not letting any of those emotions surface too much. So I think this was kind of my outlet where I could go and just pour whatever I was feeling. And you can kind of hear in all these, there's like a lot of yearning. There's, I think, a real wish to connect and a real wish to express that I was not really finding an outlet for in my day-to-day life outside of this. So I think this was sort of a chance for me to channel that in a very direct way. In some ways, I feel like I understood that this language made more sense to me than verbal language did in the sense that if I tried to write lyrics and poetry, it wasn't the right thing coming out. Like I couldn't figure out how to express it. But with this, I felt like I could. And that was part of why I fell in love with doing this kind of work. That's great. Where can people uh, find you online now? You have your own awesome yeah, website. You can you find got... me at matlemay.com for uh, tech and product management stuff. You can find me at aquestionoffrequency.com for music and recording stuff. And uh, that's me. Matt LeMay here on Lost and Rewound. And Allison, thanks, oh, thanks, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. I'm really glad. I'm always really happy to be here. We'll be back a little bit to wrap up. Boy, that was a fun episode with Mr. Matt LeMay. And thanks again to Allison Goodman for joining in on the fun. If all that awesome music that you heard reminded you of something that you have kicking around, by all means, again, our email address, lostandrewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org. We have all of our episodes also up on Podomatic. If you wish to go and take a look at the archives, lostandrewound.podomatic.com. Be a follower. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook and SoundCloud and iTunes. We're all over the place. Once again, I am Alon, signing off for another edition of Lost and Rewound. Radio Free Brooklyn. Bye-bye. What's it really like? Is it really, like, um, dangerous everywhere? It's nothing like Saskatchewan, I bet. Let's just say it's different.